ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Hello and uh, welcome to the Where the Big Boys Play. As ever, I'm here with Brian and Chad. Say hello, fellas. How's it going? Hey, guys. Um, we're here today to talk about the Great American Bash 1986, um, which was a tour of 14 different cities um, that took place. And we're, we're actually not, obviously, doing a review of the whole tour, but of the VHS um, release uh, that came out at the time, and Brian, I, I believe you have a, a little bit of detail on the VHS release itself. Um, we're doing the one with uh, Hawk and Flair as the first match. Yeah, yeah. The, the VHS that was released basically was a kind of snapshot of what, what was going on throughout the tour. Some of, some of the bigger matches, uh, basically clips of stuff that was going on. Uh, if you ever take a look at the the full tour, there's actually some other matches on there that I would have rather they put on. And, and there's some curious uh, some curious matchings, too, that once we get through here, I can discuss a little more that it's it's another another look at Dusty possibly putting himself ahead of a couple of other feuds that seem to be kind of heating up at the time. Right, and just before we get into this, do we want to uh, mention the Crockett Cup? Because <laughs> we, we, were, we were thinking of doing it, but we thought it basically involved uh, sitting through a two or three hour show, which was clipped to hell and had no commentary, so none of us really felt like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good tag team tournament. Um, Dusty and Flair fight there. Uh, Dusty uh, ends up losing by DQ when he gets caught using a chair uh, by the ref. That kind of sets up their, their feud, I guess, over the summer, Dusty and Flair. I mean, they, they feuded for two years now, so... Um, I don't, I don't know if anything sets it up anymore, to be honest with you, but they, they're just kind of what they do. And other than that, the Red Warriors just, you just ran through everybody. Um, won the Crockett Cup, won the money, and, uh, won, won the big, uh, trophy itself, which was an obscenely large trophy if you've ever seen it. It was really, really big. And I'm, I've been curious today, like, where is that trophy sitting right now? Like, does, does Animal have it, or is it sitting somewhere like David Crockett's house? I would say a pawn shop. That's possible. <laughs> It's very possible. Yeah, they probably like sold it for crack in the mid nineties or something. <laughs> those guys. Um, I did actually pull up the. Uh, I have um, all of the uh, wrestling observers. Uh, you know, Dave Meltzer's uh, original newsletter uh, from nineteen eighty six, and he actually runs through the whole. Um, I don't know how he was able to see all, all of these matches, but he gives them all a, a star rating. Um, and I just had a look through to see if there was any th any kind of points of interest there. And probably the biggest point of interest for me was one of the teams who didn't show up, um, Rick Martel and Dino Bravo. Thought that would have been a cool, <laughs> cool Canadian team. 
But apparently, yeah, that would, that would have been a def, definitely, definitely a good team. Um, I'm trying to think of the date. Uh, Martel would have just lost the AWA title about four months before, so I'm not real sure what he was doing, unless he headed to the WWF at this time, and so did Bravo actually. So actually, thinking about it, that's exactly what would have happened. But he reckons that Bravo is legit injured here because he was in New Orleans for this show. But oh, okay. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, they were scheduled to be against Terry Taylor and Steve Williams, who are one by forfeit. Um, I was just uh, going through. There were a couple of four-star matches that he mentions. Fantastics versus uh, Arn and Tully sounds like a good one. And uh, then he gives um, the Fantastics versus the Sheep Herders a five-star rating. Yeah, that, that's that's one of those um, like matches that um, it's clipped on a tape, so it, it's hard to see the whole thing. But I've I've read on many many boards and things about the, the greatness of that match, according to to Wrestling Observer, and it's something I would love to see. You know, the the entire version of. But I don't know if we ever will or not. I'm sure up in Stanford, Connecticut, it's housed away somewhere up there. I'm actually curious as to how Meltzer got to see all these matches. Did he literally travel to each show or? Like, it was, it was the, the the Crockett Cup was actually two nights um, down in New Orleans in the Superdome. So I mean, all, if he all he would have had to have done was taking a trip to New Orleans and spent two nights down there. They did it all in one place over two days. He, he basically says that the crowd for these shows were really disappointing. So um, the afternoon show drew three thousand five hundred, and the uh, evening show was thirteen thousand or fifteen thousand. Um, and he puts that down to the fact that there was no local coverage, that they didn't really sell it to the New Orleans local market, um, and that like 60% plus of those people were coming from outside of the area. So he reckons that of the 3,500 who went to the matinee show, 80% were from outside of New Orleans. So Wow. Um, I, I guess this will be a, a theme uh, for Crockett. You know, they've got a great product, but they're not able to market it effectively. Um, and it's uh, a theme that we may see repeated uh, here at the Great American Bash, <laughs> 1986. Um, I have a I have a couple of other little. Uh, I don't want this to be a too wrestling observer uh, heavy, but given that I've just uh, read this stuff, um, Meltzer basically says that this entire tour was a disappointment for the promotion. Um, he. Uh, hold on a second. Yeah, he, yeah uh, I, I had heard that, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong from the Observer, that they had the idea, because of the 85 bash being in that stadium setting and drawing so well, that this whole tour in 86 would be put in stadiums, and because they did most of these in stadiums, the, the draw was very, very bad. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard differently on there, but I remember reading that somewhere. Well, he basically says that... Um if you have a look at the, the figures, you know, a lot of them aren't, aren't big gates. Um, and he puts it down to a couple of things. Um, the first thing he says is that um, Dusty had this, like, apparently the, a lot of these shows were cross-promoted with um, country music acts. So there was, like, a wrestling show and a concert to go along with it. Um, and he says, obviously, you know, that's fine down south, but it means nothing to guys in Philly or, or in Washington. Um uh, and uh, given your reaction to Willie Nelson last uh, last week, Brian, uh, I can see what he means. Um, and the other uh, the other thing was that he reckons that the prices were just way too expensive. So the cheapest ticket was twenty dollars, 
Wow. Which for 1986 yeah. is pretty expensive. And he says, well, with all the free stuff on TV, who's going to pay such jacked up prices for what he calls bleachers seats in a football stadium? What's a bleacher seat? Is that an American expression? Yeah, it's. Ba- I think. I think what he's saying is that if you're in a football stadium, you know, it's built so you still have the whole, you know, like if you look at Wembley Stadium, for example. I mean, all those seats around there. There's all that room in the middle where the where the where the where the field is. Yeah. And you figure if they stick a ring in there, and you're paying twenty dollars the cheapest seat, you're probably going to be somewhere up in the stands in Wembley Stadium. Right. How are you going to be able to see that ring that well? Yeah, I think in this country we call them the the gods, basically. Those seats. What are they? The the, the god the gods the god seats. Because you're, okay. you're literally as high up as God. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, like the Charlotte show drew twenty three thousand, which is a pretty respectable crowd. But then they got like one thousand nine hundred in Memphis, six thousand in Washington D.C., and around eleven thousand in Philly. Which for Philly, which is a you know big wrestling hotbed, is probably a pretty poor gate, right? You'd figure, but I tell you what, if they did that in the Spectrum, eleven thousand would have been fantastic. But because they do it in Veterans Stadium, um, as we'll see with the Hawk Flair match, it probably it would had to have looked terrible. Yeah, the, the, the only other little thing that he mentions is that um, for some reason they decided to run with Baby Doll in the ring in St. Louis, and he says that fans down in St. Louis do not go for BS in any single way, which is why uh, both Vince and Crockett are dying a death down there. That the Basically, the fans in St. Louis don't go for gimmicky shit, and um, you know they're they're literally struggling struggling to make crowds over a thousand in St. Louis, which is interesting. Yeah, they they have um, listened to a lot of um, interviews and podcasts with uh, Larry Matisic, who was like the like under Sam Bushnick for the NWA in St. Louis, and the, the, in its heyday, St. Louis was like the hub for the NWA. So their their wrestling there was really like. As, as close to real, real as you could get, you know, when you had your matches, everything had to have a reason, every finish had to make sense, or, or like you said, there those fans just shit all over it. Yeah, no, no, I think on a previous show, Chad was saying that um, he doesn't really have a lot of interest in uh, visiting that central state's territory, that he's here that it's, you know, pretty bad, uh, you know, quality-wise, it's like quite boring. Have you heard that as well, Brian? Have you seen any of that stuff? I've seen some of it, and I mean, if you have seen enough wrestling and you realize that they have Bulldog Bob Brown on top for most of it, that in itself will, will say to you that it's terrible. I mean, they've had runs where interesting stuff has happened. Um, what is his name? Uh, Buck Robley was there for a little bit. I know he took over the book for a little while in the mid-'80s, and they had some interesting stuff going on, but never enough to really become like a a great hotbed for wrestling now. So in the central states area, meaning Kansas City and stuff, where St. Louis was separate from that, that was a lot better. But by the time we're in '86, at this point, St. Louis was dying a death. I mean, that's where Hardy Race is from, right? St. Louis. He was no, for he actually owned. I believe he might have bought into the St. Louis office once. Um, Larry Matisic and Sam Mushing had passed away. Matisic had left. He was basically part of the partnership that owned the Kansas City office, which would have been "quote unquote" Central States Wrestling. Right. Okay. I was in the impression that St. Louis was actually part of that Central States. Um, uh, by by now, they very well might have been. I, I'm not sure by '86, but I know through the years they won it all. Um, St. Louis was its own like individual territory, pretty much. 
where star, they were bringing stars from everywhere else across the country for their, their big shows at the uh, Keel Auditorium. Hi, wrestling fans. I'm Tony Schiavone. And I'm David Crockett. And welcome to the Great American Bash. 14 cities and 33 days. The greatest wrestlers, the greatest wrestling matches, and the greatest wrestling fans were there to witness something was outstanding, Tony. David, when you think about the Great American Bash, you think about the matches. You think about Nature Boy Ric Flair signing to put up his title 14 different times in a span of 33 days. No other champion had ever done that in the NWA. You also think about Baby Doll in late April. She wanted to get her hands on Jim Cornette. Finally, during the Great American Bash, she was able to. You also think about the war between Jimmy the Boogie Woogie Man Viant and number one Paul Jones. A war that had been going on for a couple of years but finally reached an all-time high when both men put up their hair during the Great American Bash. The, uh, the tape starts, and without any introduction or anything, um, we get, well, certainly mine was like this. I don't know if uh, you guys had the same, had the same uh, version, but it basically starts off straight away with Hawk versus Flair. Um, yeah, mine was the same way. Yeah, I think what they did there was, the, the original VHS that was put out, I know starts out, as we'll see after this match with them talking, and it's almost like the first version of a DVD extra, if you will, on VHS here, where they slapped one more match on it, and I guess sold it again, so you'd have to maybe buy it a second time. That's pure speculation, but I'm guessing maybe that's what they did. Yeah, well, the, the sound of video quality on, on this match seemed to be a couple of notches below the rest of the tape, so I was actually wondering if, like, if, you know, wherever I'd got this uh, version from, if a fan had just, like, stuck it in there, but... Uh, no, I actually have the original, like, Turner copy of the tape, and it's funny because this version and the other version are exactly the same, except they put a sticker on the copy that says, also included Hawk versus Flair. So so this is from uh, the very first um, Great American Bash show, 1st of July, 86, from Philadelphia. Um, our hosts are Crockett and Shivani, who are just on commentary. They don't really introduce themselves. Um... And this was at the Veterans Stadium, like you said, and drew about uh, just under 11,000 people, which is not good for a stadium, right? No, no, definitely not, especially with seats, you know, on the ground and stuff. If, if you're putting people down on the ground as well, the, I mean, the, the stands are going to be almost empty. So so is there any story going into this? Did uh, Flair have any uh, beef with the Road Warriors, or is this just part of, you know, part of Flair's, um, like he signed a contract to take on 14 different opponents in 14 different towns? Right, yeah, basically they, Jim Crockett had announced the bash, and, and uh, as part of it, it was Ric Flair is going to defend the title 14 times in 30 days against a, a various mishmash of opponents, which we can go over later when we get to his his second defense on this show. And this is basically just his his first match against uh, one of the Road Warriors. So, so getting into the match here, I've got um, written in my notes that Hawk looks like a plastic action figure and works like one in this match. He looked particularly kind of... Um, do you ever have those like uh, He-Man toys with... Uh, or was it the Thundercat ones where you press the thing in the back, and you know their arms move? Do you, have, do you remember those things? <laughs> there was like a thingy in the back, and you, you push it, and it, you know they do a punch. Um, that was kind of how Hawk was moving in this match. <laughs> There's not a lot uh, to report here. He, he Flair gets a vertical suplex uh, for two at one point. We get a ref bump um, from who else but Tommy Young. 
um, Hawk gets uh, Hawk gets a pin and celebrates as if he's won the match. Ellering celebrates. The fans go nuts, but of course it's a DQ because there was a ref bump. Um, so your favourite uh, finish to a match here, Bryant, <laughs> with the with the ref bump and the face celebrating. Yep, the good old dusty finish rears its head on our first match of the uh, night. So I mean, I've I have railed on Tommy Young so far uh, as a legitimate referee. Um, it's happened yet again. If I, I mean, if I was Jim Crockett, I would be really, I'd be pulling Tommy Young into the office and say, "Look, Tommy, this has happened again, and this is probably about the fiftieth time this has happened this year. This is probably one of the most overused finishes that uh, Dusty had. It's getting ridiculous at this stage." Yeah, and ref ref bumps will go on and on and on and on and on. It's just a. Yeah, you're right. At this point in Crockett, they're using it constantly, but it's something even today you think about. Well, oh, let's have a ref bump. We'll have something happen. It's it's almost like a loss of creativity. Chad, any uh, thoughts on this match? Well, I, I thought the uh, the ref bump and the finish in this match particularly was one of the worst examples we've seen because um, when Hawk has the pin, Tommy actually counts the pinfall, which is extremely confusing. I mean, sometimes, you know, you'd have another official run out and then you'd have the disagreements, but if he knew he was going to disqualify Hawk, why bother counting the pin? So he does that and then he raises his hand and then, you know, slams it down to disqualify him. But it was just a pretty terrible finish. And as far as the matches, the whole one thing that sort of struck me was this was sort of a case, I thought, where I know they wanted to protect Hawk, uh, but they really kind of made Flair as the champion look pretty bad in this match. I mean, he's the world champion, and he was able to mount hardly any offense except when Hawk, uh, you know, there was a couple times where he lunged at Flair and Flair moved out of the way and that's when he'd take over on offense. Other than that, this was Flair, you know, throwing the proverbial kitchen sink at Hawk and Hawk shrugging it off and dominating 80% of the match. So I thought this was not... A, uh, a good match structure-wise and protecting the champion, making him look credible uh, in that regard. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, one of the things, um, you can compare Hawk to Hulk Hogan here. And one of the things about Hogan is that he does always give his opponent something. You know, most of that match is Hogan getting his ass kicked until the last five minutes. Um, when he ends up no-selling all the guy's big moves at the end. Yeah, but I mean, he still he still sells, you know, for eighty percent of the match, right? I mean, especially at this point, especially in eighty five, eighty six, um, Hawk does none of those things. Couldn't even sell for the champ, and he couldn't even lose. He wouldn't even. This is not even a job, is it? Yeah, I mean, this this. I mean, I don't. As far as disqualifying him for what actually happened at the end that was suspect because like you said I mean in every match we've seen Tommy Young gets you know hit ran into or something and goes flying out of the ring or onto the floor and a lot of times 
there hasn't been a disqualification or that's caused a different finish. So there's just no consistency. And uh, by any regards, it was an inadvertent move by Hawk. So it, this was just a pretty poor finish. Uh, overall, not well thought out. If I was a fan at this time, I'd actually be thinking, why are the Road Warriors a tag team? Probably Hawk or Animal could be legit kind of champs, single champ contenders, if they're this invincible. Yeah, really, it's sort of, you could have said it any better. They they really did. They look like killers out there all the time. And if they're really just getting mowing over everybody, why don't they break into singles and take all those belts? But I, I think truly the reason being, you know, away from the, the kayfabe reasoning is that they just sucked in the ring as singles wrestlers. Now, Brian, uh, Animal also had a match um, against Flair. Do you know what happened in that? I don't know exactly what. I, th I think it was a DQ or another schmoz where Flair wins. They, they know they fought on July 9th, uh, which would have been in um, Cincinnati, which is another northern city. So uh, I'm not sure the exact finish, but uh, I'm going to guess it was a Flair DQ. Uh, there's no way he pinned Animal either. Um, especially when, or again, we get down to the Dusty match. I know they mention, uh, after the, after that match, they mention a couple of things about why Flair ends up losing the title. And um, I'm guessing Animal kicks his ass for a while, and then, uh, you know, Flair either gets DQ'd or Animal DQ'd. I can actually find out here for a, in a second here while you guys chat. Let me take a look. While Brian's doing that, um, I did actually read something interesting in the, Mel in the Meltzer stuff um, on the Row Warriors at this time. He was basically saying that, much like Hulk Hogan, fans didn't like to see Hogan lots of times. So if WWF were very good at kind of protecting him and limiting his appearances, so, you know, he could be in town, you know, in one town one month, they may not see him again then for a number of months after that. And he was saying that in 1985, um, they booked Hogan like seven nights in a row in the same kind of territory and the gates went down every single night. And he said if you look at the Row Warriors, the same is true of them. That if you overexpose them, fans don't turn up night after night to see them. So that's quite it's quite an interesting little thing. They're, they're, they're booked, um, what was his wording? They're better booked as an attraction than as a, you know, somebody who can go seven nights a week. So that interested me. Um, I found the information. Um, actually, I usually get a lot of this information from a fantastic website. Give credit where it's due. Uh, the, ever, the history of WWE.com. Um, uh, the, the guy that runs the site, um, his name is Graham Cawthon. I, I don't know him personally. I've heard him give interviews and things. But he has an amazingly detailed website with uh, information from Crockett, WWE, Ring of Honor, almost every main territory and some really good detailed results but for this one uh, as we suspected flair did win by disqualification over animal um in cincinnati in front of 3900 people at another baseball stadium so you can imagine how small a crowd that must have been too wow okay so i mean still at this stage the road warriors don't sell for anyone they don't lose we are taken from that match to a studio now and it's uh, Tony Schiavone and David Crockett, um, and they basically introduce this video as if it's starting now, talking about, you know, 14 cities, 33 days, this is the Great American Bash Tour. 
they talk about some of the feuds coming into this. Um, Baby Doll against Jim Cornette. Um, and Brian, uh, you can fill us in on these as and when they come up. Jimmy, definitely, Jimmy definitely. Valiant yeah, there's, versus... there's a lot of interesting goings on. Uh, with uh, That's the thing I love about the bash almost, is the lead up to most of these matches. Yeah, we've got a Jimmy Valiant never-ending uh, feud against Paul Jones. So going to be seeing some of the boogie woogie man later on, Chad. Um, and then Magnum TA versus uh, Nikita Koloff in a best of seven series. And then we're taken to a compilation of uh, like a montage of footage from all 14 cities, um, which looks absolutely amazing. So that made me wonder, does the footage exist from all 14 cities? Uh, you know, I wonder the same thing. I see that and just think, oh, there's all out there. And as a collector, I would love to have every single one of them. So now they start talking about um, Jimmy uh, Jimmy Valiant and his feud against Paul Jones. And the first match here is a hair versus hair match. Um, the Boogie Woogie Man versus Shaska Watley, um, who was actually Pistol Pez Watley uh, as a heel which uh, is really weird and surprised me. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about this uh, story, Brian? Yeah, uh, basically, uh, as we all know, Jimmy Valiant and uh, Paul Jones had their, their never-ending uh, feud going on. And Paul Jones at the time, I, I, he had uh, the Bar Baron Von Raschke, the Barbarian, uh, a couple other guys on his army that uh, he had going against Jimmy Valiant. Jimmy had his friends in Manny Fernandez and specifically Pistol Pez Watley. Uh, they had been friends, and all of a sudden, it was on the March 29th uh, Worldwide Wrestling Show. Jimmy Vine is cutting one of his crazy promos, and Shaska, or Pez Watley's with him. And uh, Valiant makes the comment that Watley is the best black wrestler around. And that, for some reason, though, that racist comment uh, shocks Watley. He ends up punching Valiant, knocking him over, um, beating him down on the ground, basically his heel turn there. And then he takes some scissors. It cuts off uh, Jimmy Valiant's ponytail and takes off with it. Uh, a week later, he shows up on TV, which which I absolutely love. He's wearing a top hat and like a tuxedo jacket now, uh, carrying around Jimmy Valiant's ponytail. He's with Paul Jones now, and his name has been turned to Shaska Watley. And uh, he was almost like the, the front of the army for, for about a month or two, as he was the one in standing in the front they would cut the, cut the interviews for them and he was I thought he was terrible on the mic I don't know if either of you have, have seen a lot of his interviews on there it was just him a lot of yelling and screaming and just it was bad but that led these two to the hair versus hair match to, to get things going because Paul Jones wanted to get the rest of Jimmy Vine's hair off and Jimmy Vine of course wanted revenge on uh, his friend not only turning on him but cutting off some of his precious hair this actually surprised me a lot because from my experience Pez Watley's always been basically at like an almost jobber level kind of dancing baby face. Uh, I mean, w would that be unfair to him to say he, I mean, if he's not a jobber level, he's at that um, jobber to the stars level, you know? Oh, uh, he, he had some, he had a little bigger run in Georgia for a little while, you know, in the earlier 80s. He, was, he wasn't like a, a big time top star, but he was, a, he was a, a known guy in Georgia, but yeah. By the time now we're in Crockett Land, he's pretty much a jobber to the stars until now. Yeah, so this is obviously a pretty big uh, push for him, considering where he's come from. Cause, uh, yeah, he would take this role actually, and and this is what he would continue with for I know as long as I can the remainder of Crockett all the way up through '87. I know he goes to their UW when they buy UWF, he goes over there for a while, but he is still that same Shaska Watley angry that that angry guy. 
Any reason for the name change? I'm pretty sure Paul Jones just changed it because he was, you know, bad guy now. I don't, if there's a detail behind it, I'm not sure what it is, but my guess is it was while you were a heel, now let's change your name. So anyway, as this uh, match starts, I was angry immediately at Watley because he still does a bit of um, baby face shucking and jiving. And I've just written here, heels don't dance. This is ridiculous. I don't, th I don't think heels should dance ever. <laughs> um, so his offense is very uh, basic here, um, but it's all it's all Watley. Um, Valiant catches color very early, and I missed how this happened. Did anybody see how he, it, this happens quite a lot on these Crockett shows where they catch color, and I don't see what led to what led to that. But he seems to be bleeding right from the start. Yeah, I didn't notice it here. Um, I know a lot of times you'll see either a hard, hard shot into the corner or the post or something, uh, but here it did seem to just sort of arise out of nowhere. Um, while I was watching, I didn't make a note of anything being necessarily strong enough to get him to bleed, but I guess something was. And one of the things I wrote going into this match was... Um, was that Watley doesn't look like he has particularly cuttable hair. You know, he, he's a black guy. He's basically got an afro, not a particularly big one. Um, and I, so I was wondering how they were going to go about this, because usually it's a guy with long hair or mullet or something. Um, so I was interested. Uh, as, you know, we'll reveal what happens uh, a little bit later. Um, all Watley does here is punches and bites and... Um, the fans at one point uh, hold on what happens here um, I actually thought that he works pretty arrogantly during this match he, he's actually quite a decent cocky little heel here you know I, I was reasonably impressed with uh, with him Chad any thoughts about this match um, I, th I thought this match was kind of uh, on the low level side of the Jimmy Valiant stuff we've seen so far um, as far as I, I think Jimmy is always going to do his shtick and it's going to be pretty entertaining, but he really needs uh, somebody good to sort of play off of him, and Shaska didn't do a, a ton here. Um, it seemed to build towards the Valiant-Jones singles match, so Shaska was essentially a gatekeeper for... Uh, getting to Paul Jones, but uh, overall the match was okay, but not very good at all. So but basically, well, I haven't actually done the finish here. What, what happens is that um, it's all Watley, but then Valiant makes a comeback and pins. Is that right? Did I miss any details here? Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty... Uh, Watley definitely dominated, and then Jimmy's able to sort of, you know, essentially hulk up and uh, sends him in, gives him the big punch, and pins him, and then they shave his head. He got a pretty good haircut. He was um, he was bald. <laughs> End of it. <laughs> I did enjoy the, the the normal heel thing of him trying to get away, and you know everybody trying to get a hold of him, hold him down, while they shave his head. I thought he, I thought uh, Wally did a great job there of you know doing his best to get away and trying everything he could to to run away and be be the uh, swarmy heel that that doesn't want to you know, do what's coming to him even though he lost. Yeah, and... Yeah, my... Uh, what, my okay. favorite thing was when he was, um, after the haircut, he crawls out of the... You know, when 
they did the thing also where he sort of realizes what has happened and uh, he scurried out in a good move and he was actually picking the hair off the mat and trying to <laughs> place it back on top of his head. So that was humorous. That was really good. Oh, I forgot about that. That was like fantastic. And then also, of course, the they have to throw something over their head to, to run out. You know, like a, a sheet or a Paul Jones jacket or something that, you know. And I'll tell you what, personally, watching people have their head shaved and then run away in shame really, really upsets somebody like me who has permanent hair loss and, uh, you know, accepted it. It's not a bad thing not to have any hair. Brian, but that's just a, that's just a personal affront. <laughs> Brian, Brian, I couldn't help but notice that the fans, uh, busted out a bald headed geek chant. <laughs> yeah. This. Jimmy Valiant loved that. Just, you know, a lot of his interviews back then, this time, even earlier, you know, I'm going to make you a bald-headed geek. So I I guess that was the big line for the time. It's Is that something that people have called you? Uh, is that like a phrase that people use? I don't think I've ever been called a uh, bald-headed geek. I, I know cue ball has happened a lot. Uh, when I was in college, a lot some of my friends would call me a cue ball. But uh, no, I've never heard bald-headed geek. I'm sure if you told a couple of my friends about it, uh, my, my best friends, none of them watch wrestling like I do, but uh, I'm sure if you told them that, they would they would run with it. So, so this was actually like, because I'd never heard this phrase before, this is a, a Jimmy Valiant catchphrase, is it, Bald Headed Geek? I know he'll use it throughout uh, at least the rest of 86. I know even up till we get Starcade at the end of the year, he's still using it. It's it's definitely not something that was a, a term used by everybody around the area. At least not up here in the north. I'm not sure if you've ever heard that before down south either, Chad. I, yeah, well, I mean, I guess one thing is back in this time, I mean, nowadays, you know, it's kind of became in style to have a bald head. Hallelujah. Whereas back in this time, I guess it was seen or frowned, I don't know, just sort yeah. of a fortunate occurrence. You're right, bald-headed back then was like, oh, you know, was, I guess it would have been looked at as, as a bad thing, and, uh, have, and having your head shaved, I guess, when you really look at it, in, in terms of pro wrestling, is a huge, huge, like, affront to your your character. Did Baron Von Raschke come out during this match? Yeah, there's a whole schmoz at the end with chairs involved, and... Yeah, it looks like for a second Watley's going to beat him, and then um, I think Manny Fernandez is the one that runs in, turns things over, and Valiant ends up getting the win. Yeah, the Baron is definitely involved. Yeah. It, I, I've got written here that uh, I couldn't help but notice that, like, D- David Crockett, I should have also no- uh, noted, is also shouting bald headed geek at the top of his voice and absolutely loving this. Um. And uh, Baron Von Raschke is kind of acting like it's the end of the world here. That, you know, Shaska's getting his head shaved and Von Raschke's like covering his face. Can't believe it. But of course, he is completely bald himself. So I'm wondering, like, you know, that's that's some interesting, uh, like, he he obviously at some level thinks having a bald head is a, is a bad thing, but he's bald himself. Which, uh, I think he's worried somebody's going to steal his thunder. <laughs> I, I can't imagine Baron actually having hair. I might, I might have to do a uh, Google search and see if there's any pictures floating around with him with hair. Shaska's yeah, cartoon acting during this segment uh, entertained me quite a lot. I actually, from my very low expectations of uh, what I was expecting from him, um, he was pretty, like, I quite enjoyed him during this match. It, it, very cartoony. Um, 
surprising he never found his way to WF actually with behavior of, of that nature <laughs> he wouldn't have been out of place I think he does wrestle a little bit later in his career as a jobber in the WWF but nothing of you know interest or anything I could swear I've seen him like on a, a wrestling challenge show or something just doing the job for somebody so um, we go back to the studio here and it's David Crockett and Tony Schiavone again that, that match I should have noticed uh, I should have noted was from the Charlotte show is that right? yes it was July 5th in Charlotte that match took place yes in front of 23,000 so pretty hot crowd um, we go to the Greensboro show now um, and David Crockett is upset um, he, he just mentions that uh, Paul Jones was upset um, with the result of that match and so challenges Valiant himself to another hair versus hair match so for uh, God knows the, the umpteen time we see Valiant versus Paul Jones in a singles match and they mention that Jones hasn't had a match for over a year at this point um, so what happens here uh, it, uh, in the meantime I'd, um, after the 7-5 show over the course of the next three weeks I, amongst the tour Paul Jones throws his, his, his charges at Jimmy Valiant throughout the place so, yeah, he, throws, he throws the Baron at him most times and it's weird they wrestle in a couple of pole matches I don't know what was on the pole but they, they wrestled in a few pole matches over the course of July Jimmy and the Baron he also fights um he also tags a lot with uh, Manny, his buddy Manny Fernandez. They take on Shaska and the Baron in a couple of tag matches. But uh, what really angers me of this whole thing is Paul Jones had the had his ace that he never sent in against Jimmy Vine. And again, it's a waste of the Barbarian. Where was he? Strange. Why did they not send him in to just annihilate Valiant? It's, it's weird, isn't it? How they... It makes no sense. It... You know those pole matches? It wasn't a black glove, was it? Could it be I have no idea what was on the pole. Because it, during this match, Baron Von Rash comes out and throws in a black glove. Um, Valiant gets it. Manny Fernandez comes out for some reason. Um, Cheska Watley is out. Uh, he gets a chair on Valiant. Jones gets the pin again. So I think this is the second time that Paul Jones has pinned Jimmy Valiant. Um manager over a wrestler again uh, Sam Houston is out uh, faces protest NWA official Sandy Scott is out so you've, you've got a referee of this kind of heavyweight caliber out now um, Valiant has a chair there's a standoff so obviously Valiant has lost the match here and uh, Sandy Scott is out to make sure that this uh, hair cutting will take place uh, Shaska Watley is dancing and loving, uh, loving this um, and then Sandy Scott does the shaving and I've just written here that Jimmy Valiant's faces are absolutely legendary uh, during uh, this segment look, look he, on his face when he's getting his head shaved is just uh, legendary is perfect word for it he, he looks like he's being electrocuted Chad were you marking out at this moment were you enjoying this <laughs> yeah uh, I thought as far as the match this was again pretty bad um Especially Paul Jones, I just, I don't really, I know, uh, you know, seeing a couple of Bobby Heenan matches in the AWA set, I think that's a real 
great way to work a match as a wrestler turned manager. And I think Paul Jones had a lot of trouble uh, perfecting that kind of role. But um, the head shaving in the U.S. terms has really... A lot of it is either a heel getting his head shaved and sort of, um, you know, doing the freak out afterwards or the baby face kind of being knocked out and getting the head shaved. You don't see a ton of, uh, I would, I would say more like the Mexican style, lucha style head shaving. And this, this was essentially this, uh, where, you know, Jimmy, sticks to his word and the agreement of the match even though he was screwed and uh takes the head shaving and shows a lot of emotion while doing it and it was it was probably i think the best u.s head shaving uh, scene that i can think of i mean it was it was up there i mean there's a ton of great lucha uh head shavings and unmaskings that i've seen and then you have even in uh japan some of the uh the Joshi head shavings um, that are very good, but this this was up there as far as U.S. is concerned. And Jimmy played it up really well, and that you know you really do feel like an asset is being lost with him losing his hair, and he's vowing going vow revenge. He's pulling all these faces. I mean, he looks like a cartoon. You know, his he, his his eyes go like he has cross eyes, and he's shaking as if uh, as if electricity is coursing through his veins. I'm saying this is the highlight of Sandy Scott's career. <laughs> um, so what else happens here? It, did, did it, Brian, any, anything uh, anything happen after this match, um, storyline-wise, in this ongoing feud with Paul Jones? Uh, they just spend the next four or five months, you know, hating each other, run-ins, you know, fighting against the army. Um, it would all lead us up to... Starcade when we would have yet another hair match between these two, but we will get to that next time. Yes. So nothing of interest over the next, you know, four months. Just a continuation of Jimmy Valiant and Paul Jones, and then the never-ending hate. Again, I have the problem with the booking of putting the manager over the wrestler. Don't understand. Yeah, I mean, this time I understand. There's so much interference that okay, it makes sense. But the the thing that bothered me about this one, and I know you had mentioned it uh, when they fought at um, I'm trying to think, the Bash last year, I'm sorry, the 85 Bash, where, you know, A, he's a manager, and he's getting a ton of offense in, but what's worse this time is he hasn't even been in the ring for a year, and he's still getting a lot of offense in on a you know, guy who wrestles every day. So, yeah, he, and Jimmy Viant in the end, I think, just makes him look terrible. Yeah, but... It- not only is the manager going over, but he's actually been through his in, the entire army at this point, apart from the Barbarian. So we, we're kind of saying that um, Valiant can beat any of the army, but he can't beat Jones himself. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I guess the other way to look at it is when he fights Jones, you know, Jones' entire army is going to do whatever they got to do to make sure their, their head on Joe uh, doesn't lose. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 um I find it unusual. I I prefer that to be like a um like a kind of. Do you remember how when Vince had the corporation and you know like the Rock was the main guy or the Triple H was the main guy, 
Did, did, did you remember that pe- period in the uh, in the? Oh yeah, era? definitely. So so like the end boss fight wouldn't be against Vince; it would be against you know the Rock, say. Um, right. I I prefer that kind of structure rather than the actual manager being the getting in the ring, you know. Be, be, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I know what you mean. In this case, though, these guys have been feuding since mid '84, so uh, at this point, I don't even think it mattered. So, so we go back to the studio, and um, Tony and David are talking about Tully and J.J. Dillon, um, who had injured Ron Garvin's hand. Um, Tully and uh, J.J. wanted uh, wanted to get this tape fist removed, but they refused because Garvin was uh, was injured. Um, so they they had a tape fist match. Any, any details missing there, Brian, on the story going into this? Yeah, I, I, I actually will go a little deeper with this one. This is by far one of my probably top five feuds ever in pro wrestling. So um, I, I just love these two in the ring and everything else that led up to it. But basically, Arn Anderson was your uh, world television champion uh, throughout 80, through almost all of 86. He and Ron Garvin had a couple of television title matches on uh, World Championship Wrestling Saturday Evening Show. They had one on March 1st that ended in a draw. They had a rematch on uh, April 5th where, again, Ronnie Garvin looked like he was going to actually maybe defeat Arn. But uh, Tully Blanchard was doing color commentary with uh, Tony and David, and he ended up running in, and they uh, beat up Garvin, but of more interest, they took him outside, actually, and Tully took his shoe off while Arn held Ronnie Garvin's right hand, the big hands of stone hand, against the outside ring post, and Tully just swung his um, his shoe or his boot on there. I don't remember if it was a shoe or a boot, but on there basically broke his hand at the time because they basically didn't want him being able to use that fist. So after that, Ronnie Garvin wrestled for, for a couple of weeks with, with the, face, the fist taped, while uh, Tully and uh, JJ continued to yell and scream that he should not be able to use that. It's an unfair advantage. At this point, the feud has switched over now to Ronnie Garvin wanting to revenge on Tully Blanchard for it. So finally, eventually, the NWA comes back and says, You're, you have to take the tape off your hands. Uh, it's they, they get it. I don't know what Tully and JJ did, but they, they get the ruling where he has to take it off. This all led up to probably my favorite television match, if not favorite top three television matches of all time, which was Tully Blanchard defending his national championship against Ronnie Garvin on the May 3rd, 1986 Worldwide Wrestling Show. If you've never seen this match, I highly recommend finding it. It's a fantastic match. It takes up the entire show of that Worldwide. And basically, at the end, we have our we have our normal ref bump. Everybody goes down. Um, this is a match that Tully's down in one side, Ronnie Garvin's down on the other side. And throughout the match, Garvin tries to use his hand. It's hurting. Tully does work on it. So it's a mess. Uh, as these guys are down, Dusty comes over and wraps up Ronnie Garvin's hand, kind of tapes it up again. Well, at the same time, on the other side of the ring, JJ's putting a roll of dimes in Tully's hand. They get up to uh, go at it. Ronnie Garvin catches Tully with the right hand, the fist, gets the pin, and looks like we have a brand-new national champion. Place is going nuts. David Crock, as you can imagine, is going crazy as well. Referee comes back in and sees that uh, Ronnie Garvin's hand was taped. J.J. Dillon's point and pointing at the tape, and they, of course, disqualify Garvin for having the, his fist taped. And the, the highlight of this, and of any time you've ever heard David Crockett screaming, is at the end of this match. He is just yelling at the top of his lungs. I think Tommy Young is the ref. 
Tommy, Tommy, Tully had the dimes, Tully had the dimes, and just why are you disqualifying him when Tully had something as well? Uh, the only thing I didn't get about his argument is, either way, somebody's getting DQ'd, so the title's not going to change hands, but it gets to that, and following that match is when the NWA decides we're going to throw these two into a tape fist match where you basically, both guys have their fist tape, it's three-minute rounds, and it's basically bare-knuckle boxing, and they would end up fighting throughout the uh, Great American Bash, this match that we're about to see here happened July 26th in Greensboro, one of the last two shows. And getting to this show, Tully and Garvin had fought six other times in tape fist matches with both men winning three. So this, this ends up being the rubber match. Yeah, and another match from Greensboro. And I should mention, uh, thanks a lot for that, Brian. Um, great, great uh, summary of, uh, of that feud. Um, most of this tape is the Greensboro show. Basically, I mean, was everything building to this? I, if you if you watch around, I mean, they built to a huge, big show, and this one ends in Greensboro as well as we'll see here at the end of this with a big, big thing. So it's almost like it was all leading to this. Yeah, I guess that, that's a good way of looking at it. I don't know if that was their plan, but it looks that way. Yeah, because I mean, my, my thought about this is that a lot of the shows on the actual tour, uh, you know, ran the horn, you know, Memphis and. Uh, Philadelphia and all, all of these different places that they went, Washington, D.C. Um, they were basically like glorified house shows just under the Great American Bash banner and that the big shows were really the Charlotte show and the Greensboro show. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely a, a good uh, it's a, it's a good way of looking at it. Although I will say that they did have a lot of good, good matches at a lot of these other shows, at least on paper. Uh, there, there were some cage matches. I know Nikita and Magda might have had a cage match somewhere. Um, Actually, concerning the match we're about to talk about, at one of the um, Bash shows earlier in the year, Arn Anderson actually fought Ron Garvin in a tape fist match. So I thought that was pretty interesting as well. So, so as this uh, as this match starts, um, Garvin just suckers Tully, and Tully is out cold. Like straight away, he's just down on the mat. Um, still, which was I thought was really cool. Yeah, uh, JJ Dillon comes out with some water. <laughs> And um, splashes water in his face to to get him uh, to get him awake, and Garvin basically just dominates round one. Um, Tully is out a bit again. He's dazed. He's swinging wildly. Basically, he's seeing stars here. Um, and most of this match is Garvin just pounding on Tully. T Tully's out a number of times, and the the, the kind of storyline is that every time Tully is out, JJ Dillon comes in. Um, Second time he uses smelling salts to get him awake, uh, which uh, I thought this was quite funny. Um, Garvin, uh, he's basically relentless here in this match. He's just attacked with the fists and it's very one-sided. Um, Tully finally gets in some uh, some offensive moves in round three. Um, Garvin's cut open after a couple of uh, attacks, but the main story of this match is that. This kind of matchup, which is basically, as you said, Brian, a boxing match, um, suits Ronnie Garvin down to the ground because you know he's known for his punches, um, and it suits it suits him much more than it suits Tully. But the big differentiator is J.J. Dillon. Um, so at the end of the match, Dillon gets a weapon, and uh, Tully uh, Tully wins from outside interference. Um, and I guess that's the last time they they fall, right, Brian? This this is the winning match for Tully. 
Yes, it is. And I, and I do know at the end, uh, it takes brass knocks for Tully to finally knock Ronnie Garvin out. Um, and the schmoz, and Wahoo McDaniel is involved around here too. It's actually a really cool scene outside of the ring when Tully, uh, is outside. He takes a swing at Wahoo and Wahoo ducks, gives him the atomic drop. And then Ronnie Garvin again, just pastes him one in the face, lays him out on the ground outside. I thought that was a really, really cool spot for this, but eventually. JJ slips the knucks to Tully until he knocks him out. Chad, any thoughts about this match? Yeah, I thought this was really good. Um, they were able to use the uh, the gimmick match of the tape fist and the round system really well in that pretty much something was going on at the end of the, each round where, uh, in most occasions, Tully was knocked out. So, you know, he wouldn't have made a regular 10 count, but he was essentially saved by the bell uh, for the end of the round. And then J.J. used a variety of tactics from the uh, smelling salt and the water and the towel to kind of revive him. Uh, thought, uh, kind of in contrast to where the first match on this show, the Hulk-Flair match, was Flair kind of you know, looking sort of foolish, throwing everything he had at Hulk that he knew would not be successful. I thought this match was much better in the regards that you really felt like Tully was just overwhelmed by uh, Garvin in the early portions of this match uh, when he couldn't get the robe off, he couldn't, he still had the belt on. Uh, and it wasn't so much Tully being dumb, it was just he was overwhelmed by Garvin and uh, the finish was very nice also where on top of the tape fist, it got escalated with the brass knuckles and gave Tully a big win. I thought Tully really, in a lot of ways, looked like a future world champion prospect in this match. I thought he was fabulous. And uh, the, sh the shots were good. They were some stiff punches thrown, which uh, is to be expected from these guys and it overall this was my match of the night I have to say he, Ronnie he, Garvin he just, was pretty good at, the, at this point in his uh, he, like I, I've often been down on Ronnie Garvin because um, mainly because of his WF stuff like, you know later on but at this point he's still like he can go Garvin especially in a match like this which is really suited to him yeah, he can, and Parf, if you can, uh, find that May 3rd uh, Worldwide match. It'll, it will definitely change your opinion on Ronnie Garvin. Ab absolutely, but this is this is two guys now where he seems to have pretty good chemistry. Obviously, he, he's good with flair, but this was good as well, and um, Tully Blanchard is just awesome at this point. Like, uh, Tully Blanchard is my vote for greatest heel of all time. I just think he's fantastic. The way he carried himself, the way he acted, his interviews... Uh, I talked before on past shows about the way he carried, just the way he carried his championship belts with him was just, he was the perfect heel. Yeah, I, I like the story of this match where he's basically overwhelmed by this, uh, he's overwhelmed by Garvin for all of the match. Um, so, you know, you don't, you often don't see many matches that are this one-sided, but then he still sneaks the win, which is, uh, you know, I guess the mark of a great champion. So we go from this. Um, yeah, I, for my part, I uh, I enjoy this match as well. I thought it was pretty good. Um, we we go from that to Road Warriors versus the Russians. Um, 
and the the Russians are wearing cool black outfits tonight, and it's the version with Nikita. I think um, Khrushchev's still on the shelf at this point. Yeah, he's he's still on the shelf. He's he's about to come off, but yeah, he's still on there right now. This is back to July fifth in Charlotte, um, and it's a double Russian chain match. So, any story going into this, Brian? Uh, not really. I mean, it's just a, a continuation of, you know, two powerful teams. Who's the baddest of the bad? Um, the, these two would post-match after this. They'd spend the rest of the bash fighting each other a lot in um, these type of matches, cage matches, regular matches. But coming into this, it, it was a, you know, pretty much just who's the baddest of the bad. Um, this is the beginning also of the show, I will say, of the bash where I start to get a little confused and where Dusty's kind of, if he's booking or kind of sl- put himself into things, starts to rear its head. The, the Warriors were, they had been feuding with the Midnight Express a lot as well, who were the NWA tag champions. And they've been fighting the Russians as well. But I've always wondered coming into here, why not do the Warriors and Midnight Express, you know, for the tag titles? Um, with the, with the here is another way of, of putting a titles on the line in a major, major show. Instead of, as we'll see here two matches from now, putting yourself, Dusty Rhodes, putting yourself into a feud against the champs with Baby Doll and Jim Cornette, as we'll see. But I never understood why they made this change in the summertime to, to get Dusty and Magnum involved with them over the Road Warriors, who had been feuding with the Midnight Express extensively after the Crockett Cup. Um, as well, I will say, what happens between the Midnight Express and Rhodes and Magnum TA is really, really cool, and it ends up in a pretty good feud, but... I just didn't understand why they made the switch here. Yeah, I mean, one possible reason I was thinking of is that maybe they wanted to keep the belts on the Midnights for the time being because they're more reliable on the road. That You know, you'd probably want to have them defending those belts more nights than you'd have the Road Warriors doing it for, for the reasons that Meltzer was on about before. That's the only yeah, reason I can think I of. Another thing off of what uh, you and Chad had said earlier that they're not going to get pinned, the Road Warriors, so you're going to end up with one tag up one schmoz after another than if you don't want it belts off the Midnight Express. So uh, I guess that's a good way of looking at it, too. I didn't think about that till right now. So, so the way these guys... This is an unusual match because we, we essentially have two different... Uh, Hawk is chained to Nikita Koloff and Animal is uh, chained to Ivan Koloff. Um, and obviously, if I was Animal, I would be pretty happy here, given that, um, out of the, obviously, out of the four of these guys... Ivan Koloff has consistently been shown to be the weak thing, as I've as I've talked about before. Um, so th- th- I think the story of this match is that um, who is able to isolate, who is able to isolate, you know, who is able to um, isolate the other guy. So so they've got um, they're chained to each other. So th- the idea would be you want to try to get the guy that you're chained to out of the picture somehow. So you can double team on the other guy. Would you agree with that? Well, I mean, it was a double chain, so that I don't know. I had some problems, kind of, with the use of the gimmick in this match, as well as I thought the last match used the tape fist round system uh, way. I thought this match sort of failed to really get over the idea of why exactly they're using the chain uh, especially as we'll get to in the end where Nikita just essentially you know basically uh, gets loose from the chain very easily and gives the sickle uh, for the finish yeah I mean we, we get a ref bump 
Um, I didn't I didn't notice if it was Tom Young, but probably. Um, Nikita unchains and he gets a sickle on Animal, but then uh, Paul Ellering interferes and uh, Animal gets the pin on Ivan Koloff for the finish. Um, yeah, did, any other thoughts about this match, Chad? I wasn't a big fan of it. No, I mean, it. I think it was... I don't, I don't know if this was the entire match. I know the World Warrior matches were not typically known to, uh, to you know, have hour-long draws a lot of times. Uh, this was probably about seven minutes, and I didn't see any obvious uh, clipping from what I could tell. But, uh, and, I mean, it was okay, but not, not very good. Um, I thought Ivan, again, looked pretty terrible, and you really had to question at this point in time, we were almost two years into this partnership with the Russians, and from a standpoint of Nikita, you have to wonder what he thought Ivan essentially brought to the table by this point, because he's always been positioned as by far the stronger member of the team, and you could have used the strategy of Ivan being the strategist or the brains behind the team, but he's the one usually getting beat up for an extended period of time in these matches. So if he's if that's all he's bringing to the table, it's not being effective because his strategy has resulted in him, you know, being dominated by whoever they're facing. Yeah, how many t times have we seen Ivan that he's a pin now? I mean, he's probably been pinned. This is probably like the fourth or fifth time we've seen him pinned so far. So yeah, um, yeah. I I actually thought that the this match is probably ill suited to what the Road Warriors can bring to the table. I mean, it, in fact, it's very difficult to know how to position them because we're, we're looking at Superman. So probably the best setting for them is a is a squash match against some jobbers. I kind of think of it like it's it's difficult when you when you have two guys who aren't willing to be competitive really. You know that they're only willing to go over opponents. They're not willing to really give anything. So it's it's difficult. Although I think we do get that spot where uh, where I think it was Hawk was hanging from the chain. I think we get that spot once again here. But you got any thoughts on this, Brian? Are you uh, higher on it than me or Chad? Not at all. No, it's just uh, I hate these kind of matches personally. There's just really no there's no redeeming qualities for me wrestling wise with these. It's just you know four guys. Punching each other with chains for seven minutes. So we go from that to uh, David Crockett, and he introduces um, a clip of the Rock and Roll Express um, in a band singing some southern rockabilly number. And, uh, yeah, I've just got written here, don't give up the day job, lads. <laughs> yeah, really. This, this was dreadful. Um, I mean, Gibson wasn't even trying to sort of fake sing his way through it. He was just sort of 
sitting there or standing there stammering. Morton uh, was attempting to kind of sing and rile the crowd up, but he was, uh, you could kind of tell that it was lip synced in because his mouth was not matching the words. This was pretty bad. It was one of the occasions where outside of the wrestling ring, uh, a team really looks worse off than, you know, their persona inside the wrestling ring or studio. Yeah, it, it, it did make me think, you know, where does the rock and roll part of the Rock and Roll Express uh, name come from? Because it, it surely can't be from their uh, skills as a band. Right. So, so anyway, this sets up a match. Um, a pretty good looking match on paper here. Arn and Ole Anderson versus the Rock and Roll Express for the number one contendership uh, of the uh, of the titles. And I've just written here, wow, this is basically a dream match, right? I, the only thing I don't understand, though, about this is how it's a number one contender match because Ole was gone for a long time. He didn't even return until June as he was injured. And he comes back now, and I was looking through some, some matches, and Ole and Arn really had only tagged, uh, I'm not kidding you, like three, four times before this period anywhere. You know, house shows anything since he returned. And I don't know how they were thrown into a number one contender match, but I realize that's looking too far into things, but it just, I didn't understand it. Are they still the national tag champs at this point? No, they, they kind of, those belts just kind of went away when 86 started. They just kind of forgot about them and got rid of them. Uh, so... Um, yeah, I'd, if I was a mark at this point, I'd be just saying, like, hold on a second. The Row Warriors have got to be number one contenders because they're invincible. They just, you know, won the Crockett Cup. And they won the Crockett Cup, so... Oh, well, maybe maybe Paul Ellering's uh, managerial capabilities have got to be brought into question there. If they're not getting, uh, you know... Don King would have had them in a the number one contendership match. Without a doubt. <laughs> so, um... Ole and Gibson start up here, and um, if, I've just written, if any match was custom-made for a lengthy face-in-peril segment, it's this one. Um, there's some uh, nice trash talk talking from Arn. Um, uh, then we get... Uh, Tony mentions that Flair and Anderson smashed uh, Ricky Morton's nose uh, before. Uh, they they did. They did. Um, there, there was an elimination match. It wasn't on television. It was just at a show. They, they showed the end highlights of it on um, uh, the, the syndicated shows. Well, basically, the Rock and Roll Express and Dusty were, were taking on Arn Tully and Flair. And in the elimination match, uh, Ricky Morton ends up pinning Ric Flair to end it. And Flair and Morton had been feuding since the spring in singles uh, over the uh, for the NWA championship. Uh, having feuds, you know, television feud, house show feud and everything. And an extension of it was Ricky pinning Flair. Well, after the match, the horseman attacked uh, Dusty in the Rock and Roll Express in the locker room. And as they got the other ones down, Ric Flair had Ricky Morton down on the ground that was actually taking his face and rubbing it back and forth on the concrete floor. A really cool visual at the time because blood starts getting on the floor too as he grinds it in there. And uh, Ricky Morton's face was a mess after that, all taped up in interviews and things. And Flair was basically saying, you know, look what I did to your pretty face. No one's going to want to be with you anymore. Because I, I guess Ricky Morton was a sex symbol at that time. But a uh, pretty cool visual at the time to see. Yeah, no, I read in the um, in the Observer, um, 
Meltzer basically mentions that uh, they they tried out Flair versus Morton in singles matches earlier on in the year, like you said, Brian. Um, but he said it wasn't drawing, so they introduced this nose angle um, and Morton wearing a, like a hockey goalie face mask uh, as a way of kind of drawing more heat on that match. I wish I wish we'd have gotten the uh, the Flair. Morton singles matches that they did during the Bash Tour instead of the Hulk Flair match. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't put that on there as well. They they had a... I know the one match the two of them had uh, is on the Four Horsemen DVD in a cage with Flair and Morton that blows anything that we see tonight away. Right, it's a great match, right. So Yeah, I, I that, that is a good match. Um, yeah, I, I've... That that's that's one of the few matches that hasn't got commentary that I I actually can really get into because the crowd is so uh, pumped for it. So what happens here? Um, we're at uh, Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson against the Rock and Roll Express, and obviously Arn and Ole target Morton's nose for this match, um, which is pretty. Uh, which is pretty funny. You, d- you don't see too many matches centered on someone's nose. There's some ironic moments here where Morton, t- Morton drives Arn's face into the mat twice. Um, and Arn sells it really well. And Brian, I'm guessing this is a callback to that six-man tag that you're talking about before, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And that was a nice, uh, a nice uh, remembrance of that. Tony and David say during this that, in a way, Ole Anderson is the leader of the Four Horsemen. Which uh, was an interesting little claim. One thing that I really liked was uh, Arn, you know, constantly stooging and making fun of Morton about his nose in the beginning, and then uh, the the way they played that off, where uh, the Rock and Roll Express is able to slam him face first into the mat, affecting his nose, uh, which they both played it off really well and of course David is the perfect person on commentary for something like that because he's you know yelling how do you like it now you know how does your nose feel which is a nice moment for that and then also the way the Andersons took over on offense uh, versus the Rock and Roll Express I thought was really good uh, mixed in there characteristically good tag team uh the, the end of this match, it, the match goes to a draw, which I guess we did get one pretty obvious clip. I don't know if you, any of you guys know whether this was a 20-minute draw or uh, exactly how long the time limit was. We didn't get an official time limit in the it was a It, it was a 20-minute draw. Okay. And uh, we saw, what, about 13, 14 minutes of it, which when the bell rung, I thought we'd only seen... I don't know, maybe seven, eight minutes. So I was surprised to actually re-round the uh, tape to see how long, uh, how much footage we actually saw and was surprised that it was 13 to 14 minutes. So I thought they filled in the time really well and uh, in a lot of ways kind of felt like they were just gearing up when the match ended in a draw. Yeah, it was a pretty good match, this. Um, and like, like I said, it, it's worked exactly as you'd, you'd imagine, especially because Morton's got the injury. Morton is your face in peril. Arn and Ole double team the hell out of him. Um, get a hot tag near the end. Uh, I think Gibson gets a sleeper on Arn, and then we get the time limit. 
one of the things I know, uh, David Crockett mentions at one moment that Ole uh, had his leg broken at the hands of Dusty at one point, and he was out for six months. Brian, do you know when that was? Yeah, he, he broke his uh, leg in January, uh, right after Starcade, kind of payback for what they did to Dusty in the cage, uh, the, the kind of birth of the horseman back in uh, September or October of 85. Um, Ole had a great return, though. They were wrestling on television, Flair and Dusty, and uh, just a regular TV match. And a, sh- a whole schmoz breaks out, and then Ole Anderson returns out of nowhere, and then they beat down Dusty, and Ole cuts a great return interview and everything. The horsemen are back together. So it was pretty good stuff, and then this kind of, they went right into this afterwards. So as hot as Ole looked coming in, they kind of cooled him off quickly. Post-match, Gibson cleans house with a chair. Um... Does anything else, does this go anywhere? Or is this just a one-off match, or do they... Yeah, they, I, I looked around. They might wrestle one other time, you know. If it was a number one contender match and ends up as a draw, I, I, I never, I guess they just said the Rock and Roll wins, because after this, the Rock and Roll Express goes right back to feeding with the Midnight Express. So I, I don't know where the stipulation came from or what. And you know, One other thing of concern I wanted to mention here is, Arn's the world television champion, and he has literally spent the entire spring and summer tagging either with flair tolly or Oli, and like the television championship like meant nothing at this time it seemed like yeah after the highs of uh of last year right yeah i guess this may can be i know one thing we was talking about par was uh how in some of the earlier shows they really uh you know they made the television champion seem extremely prestigious as just one step below you know, a uh, the world title, and certainly, you know, later on as we get to the '90s and we have the Prince Ikea uh, uh, reigns, you know, that certainly was not the case. And this may have been uh, one of the first indicators of that belt sort of getting downplayed. It, it gets to, it gets its importance back. I know throughout '80s, the rest, the second half '86 and '87, and then like you said, after that, Chad, it really starts to become devalued. I know by the time Mike Rotunda has it in 88, it really is just a secondary championship. I guess it kind of goes through waves uh, according to who uh, is holding the belt because, you know, it does make a little bit of a comeback also in the early 90s. But uh, I I guess it's just a cyclical thing. I'd have thought it may get a uh, a little kind of boost when the national title disappears. Does that happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they'll, they'll, when the national title ends up getting merged with the United States Championship, at that point, I'm trying to think, um, yeah, the TV title does become more prestigious again at that point, because that's when you have Dusty and Tully again uh, fighting over it. So it's it's weird. Like, it's it gets in Arn's hands and they devalue it, but as soon as it gets back to Dusty or, and Tully and him are involved again, boom, it's a big title again. But that's, say what you will. Was, was Ole Anderson doing any booking at this point? Or was it just all Dusty? I have no idea. I'm going to guess it was Dusty because from stuff I've read, I know Ollie and Dusty did not get along. Certainly, from the certainly Dusty was definitely booking this because uh, that's what Mel, you know Meltzer goes on about uh, Dusty's booking. I'll go on to that a little bit later. I'm just wondering, like, because Ollie's a big backstage guy, and I'm just wondering what his uh, what his stake was at this point because the Georgia territory is gone now, right? It's merged into Crockett. Yes. Yes. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.